Like 1 through 12, 30 through 31, 36 through 39, 45 through 52, but it'll make sense. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down, bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Okay, so at this point, the women go back to the disciples. There's this whole thing about the road to Emmaus. Uh, disciples are walking with Jesus, and they don't recognize him. Let's skip to 28. They sit down for, to eat. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it again, and began to give it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And then the disciples go to tell the others about this event, so 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. I, it is I, myself, touch me and see. The ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. So then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And 50, he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he was taken up into heaven. It's not for nothing that uh, when we decided to found a church together, we called it Resurrection Church. Because I, I think, I hope we have a common commitment to the idea that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central fact in history. The point of the story. The point and purpose of history is that God would become flesh, would dwell with us, among us, and defeat death and rise from the dead. It's not just one point in time. It's the point of time. It changes everything. It connects everything. It was never not the plan. It gives us individually and collectively a purpose and a point, a meaning and a mission. It gives us a charge to move out into the world to take our own places in the bigger story of redemption, to go and do justice and seek kindness, to be his face and his hands and his feet to the world, to proclaim the good news, to serve him and all the people God created, and to advance the kingdom of love. We are creatures of time, and so we're creatures of story. Now, the Gospels are kind of different on how they give an account of the resurrection, and those differences have inspired people to basically, I don't know, spill a sea of ink about how to maybe reconcile them, or how to bring them together, and, you know, uh, I think that those attempts may well 
miss the point. A lot of people run from the inconvenient stuff in the Bible. We tend not to. And the different gospels have different visions of what happens at the resurrection. So like all of the accounts of the resurrection, except for John, are all the accounts of the resurrection of the women going to the tomb. All of them except John have them encountering the angel of the Lord. And Mark and John, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene like immediately after the visit to the tomb. But in Luke, not so much. It takes about, I don't know, 60 verses to get to the very end where Jesus is grasped and seen by everybody. Each of these stories shows us something about the character of the resurrection. And I don't know, it, it shouldn't be surprising like that. It's a beautiful and incomprehensible thing that requires different takes. It's like, I don't know, blind guys groping at an elephant, except the elephant is the infinite God who became a finite man and died to defeat death. And we're not only blind, but we don't have the language or the concepts that are up to the task. Our words do not and cannot fully grasp the character of the risen word. We've, uh, I don't know, uh, we've been talking about the story of, uh, of, of, of Holy Week and of, of the movement to Jerusalem and beyond in Luke. And I have to be honest, like, at first glance, the story in Luke is, to me, the most frustrating of the resurrection accounts. But when you see what, what the Spirit is doing here, to me, it is utterly and beautifully gorgeous. So we've been talking about Luke is kind of doing the journey to Jerusalem as the frame for the resurrection. I don't know, it's like uh, the journey is like this engagement band that makes the diamond of the resurrection really pop out in its full and luminous beauty. We kind of saw Zacchaeus on the road and the point of a new Israel. We saw the parable of the Minas and the idea that Jesus is going to bring about a new kingdom. And we saw, you know, kept talking about nesting eggs, etc. that the vision of home for Israel, there was that God's presence was in the temple, that the temple was in Jerusalem, that God's prophets and God's priests and God's king were on the throne and the world was made right, that it is the a story that is the fulfillment of the yearning of all of salvation history. And Luke is trying to tell the story of Jesus's resurrection as an extension of it, as a, I don't know, as a picture of Jesus with a new Jerusalem and in a, with a new temple and with a recreated cosmos where God sits at the throne and where the universe has become a home again for the world. He's the center, going to the center of the nesting egg and the ascension. But that's why I find the presentation of the resurrection and Luke kind of frustrating personally because like Jesus doesn't appear and crucially isn't recognized by the disciples until he ascends into heaven. I want like, I don't know, sing Dr. Trey, Macho Man, Randy Savage, like I rose from the dead, woohoo! Or I don't know, like uh, I refuse to reference Michael Jordan here. So, uh, you know, Carl Malone maybe kissing his bicep and saying the Savior always delivers on Sunday. That's the vision of the resurrection we want, where Jesus is immediately apparent to everybody and is rising. But in Luke, there's this kind of set of, of weird things that happen. He's going to deliver, but he's going to deliver, deliver in time. And we only see kind of wisps and hints of Jesus as he moves out from the tomb in Luke. The women hear from the two angels. Peter sees the linens that Jesus has shed off. Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus and talks to disciples, I don't know, about Jesus and who he is and how he's the shape of redemption. And he sits down with them and breaks bread with them. And as soon as he breaks the bread, they see him. And what happens? He disappears immediately. 
And that, that, that's not the end of it. The two run to tell the other disciples, and the disciples are sitting there debating about it, and Jesus appears to them, and the scripture tells us in verse 37 is their first reaction is that they think they see a ghost. Where is that moment where they see the risen Lord? In the presence of all the disciples, Jesus shows them his hands and his feet. He declares what is written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and he tells them that they are witnesses to the most basic fact of history, that on the third day, the Messiah will rise from the dead and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and then he ascends. Why does Luke tell the story that way? Why not just wrap up the resurrection with Jesus appearing promptly to everyone to verify the event? I think we're supposed to hear in this story one that weaves together Jesus' journey on the road to Jerusalem with the larger story of the history of Israel, with the larger story of God making the universe a home for us again, with his rising and returning to the rightful place at the throne of a new temple, at the throne of God, and that in his uh, dying and his resurrection and his ascension, the story is not only the redemption of us individually from the consequences of death, but instead the whole of the cosmos is risen up and made holy and made a place where the incarnate God sits and gives us a place and a purpose and a home and a direction. Don't settle for too small of a vision of Easter. Don't get me wrong, like being saved from death is pretty clutch. But death here is bigger than the simple cessation of our biological processes. The life that he offers is so much bigger than our collective survival, the home that he is making is so much more than a place where we might find security or even meaning. Luke wants us to see that the whole of the cosmos is being made right. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Luke doesn't. But there's like these three touch points in Luke that point us to that before it gets to the story of Jesus kind of appearing and disappearing. First one, morning. In verse one, we are told that the women come to the tomb, quote, very early in the morning that Sunday. Now, you all likely heard the explanation for this. Jesus died Friday night, and Saturday was the Sabbath, taking care of bodies' work, so the women couldn't get there. They wanted to be there as early in the morning as they could. But I think there's more than practicality at stake here. In the Gospel, Luke has these kind of beautiful rhetorical accents. One of them, the word here is not morning. It's dawn. And the word that is translated as very early is not very early. It is not quite that functionally oriented of a word. The word is batheos. And it's not like the regular word for early. It actually means deep. It's the word that's used in the New Testament to describe the depths of the ocean, the incomprehensibility of God's goodness. So if you were going to translate this directly, you'd say something like, in the depths of the dawn of the first day of the week, the women came to the tomb. Remember that old Reagan commercial, Morning in America? This is like Luke saying, this is morning for the cosmos. He's saying that the women are in the depths of the morning at the beginning of the new cosmos, and we're supposed to feel with them that this Sunday morning is a new morning in the biggest possible sense, in the most beautiful sense, in a deeper sense, a morning whose goodness is deeper than not only this tomb, but any tomb and every tomb that has ever existed. And they rolled away the stone and found Jesus' body gone. Second clue, the angels, and this is some nerdy Greek grammar stuff. Verse 5. Look at what the angels say to the women. 
Our text for today translates it as a question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And it's, it's not a bad translation, but the text is way spicier than that. Why do you look for the living among the dead has an, a wonderful element of Easter hope in it. Don't get me wrong. And Jesus is alive and, you know, don't be looking for him among dead folk. But what the angels say is so much better. Why do you seek zonta metaton necron? It should really be translated as why do you seek with the singular and definitive article, the living one among the dead ones. Man, that's a small thing that makes a big difference. The angels call Jesus the living one in the singular. Not just that he's alive, not just that he's you know, an individual living person, that he is the living one. It has echoes of John, the way, the truth, the life. Dead, on the other hand, they're plural. There are lots of different dead ones, but at the resurrection, there is one who lives. There's one in whom we have life. The angels aren't just looking for a clever rhetorical question to really drive the surprise home. The distinction here is not between Jesus who is alive and all those other suckers in the tomb. It's between Jesus who is the life, the source, the creator, the principle of all life, the risen one, the fount of every blessing, the cornerstone of the cosmos, the prophet, the priest, Messiah, and king of a new and a universal Jerusalem, the one who gives us meaning, who gives point and purpose to our life, the one who is not like the grindingly inert mass of the dead ones and everyone who has died before us. It's not just a material difference of biological status. It is a difference in the character of being. In essence, we may die individually, but in him we have life. Third cue or clue, risen. He is risen. Ah! I wish there was a way to make this work in English. Okay, so at first glance, it seems like the angels are like maybe reading from the creed or liturgy or maybe like a chick tract or something, I don't know. And we hear it in a series of propositions that reflect salvation history. So uh, you know, they're just kind of doing the Romans road in verses seven and six. He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day rise again. Now, if Luke's quoting the angels right, this is the first properly theological use of the term crucifixion in the whole story of Jesus. The crowds yell it. The Bible uses it. But this is the nugget that inspires the creed that we say, just said, every Sunday. Why does it matter? I mean, you know, not to be goofy about it, but why not say that Jesus was killed or that Jesus was executed or put to death or that Jesus was killed on a cross? Well, the word for crucified is starothania, and it literally means to be raised up on a stake. And it's derived from another word, anasthenai, which means, guess what? Raised up. If Luke's quoting the angels rice, right, the first use of the term crucifixion in this explicit reflection on Jesus, it would have been heard by the Greek audience of folks who heard the words, they would have heard this beautiful connection that we don't. The closest we can come is to say he was raised up on a cross and then he was raised up from a dead. But those two words are cousins. That's not just a nerdy etymological point. The connection between those two words almost explains the totality of the gospel. The Romans, the religious authorities, even the orders of sin and death wanted to raise him up 
on a stake, wanted to raise him up to death. But Jesus took that raising up, the worst manifestation and condensation of how we could imagine dying, and he redeemed it. That the world raises up to kill or cause to die, he raises up to cause to live and to bring to eternal life. And that connection between Styrothania and Anasthania, it can only hear in the Greek, but it embodies our sense of our God. He takes what we make and he remakes it, turns victimhood into victory, takes death and kills it, takes fallen flesh and frees it, takes sin and suffering and saves us, turns resistance into redemption, graves into gardens, loss into life. And I can't help but think that that is why in verse 8, when he tells that, that when the angels tell the story, the women remember his words. It's not that anamnesis word that we have on the altar there. It's a different remember word. The word here is eminestan, which means, are you ready for this? To actively unforget. They hear in that connection between raised, being raised up on a stake and being raised up to life. They actively unforget everything that had caused them to not see the character of Jesus, and they put his rising at the center of their mind in the depths of that dawn. The living one has caused these women to actively unforget that being risen on a cross and all that represents is rewriting not only of all of history, not only the span of the cosmos, but the story of our church, the story of your life, the story of your family, weaving them all in to one story. That's why Luke sandbags the big moment. He wants to drive home that all stories end and begin here. That all stories are about the ascension of the risen Lord uh, who rises to the throne of God and a new heaven and a new earth and that there's a new Jerusalem and the story just isn't complete until Jesus moves through the old one and takes up his place on the throne in the new one. It is the story of all stories. It is the one that ties together Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, his journey to the cross and out of the grave, the women's journey to the empty tomb, the journey back to the disciples, the day of ascension, the story of the disciples not getting it and not seeing him, Israel's story of exodus and exile and yearning, the story of the world and all its fallenness, and each of our own individual stories, which sometimes feel fallen, but in the end are tied to this one moment where God raises them up and makes them whole. It's the beauty of of the Gospel of Luke. If you got your Bible open, flip back to one if you can. Luke says at the very beginning, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. Lots of things have been handed down here. Lots of things have been fulfilled here. There's a million different stories, but the words Luke uses to describe what he's doing is something like, I want to tell the story with all things carefully and methodically ordered. And that's not just about getting the story right or the facts straight. Luke knows that he is telling the Arche story. He even says it there, the story from the very beginning, the story that is condensed in Jesus's final words to his disciples. He told them, this is what is written. He told them this at the first moment that they fully recognized him and who he was after he had been resurrected. They told him this, but or he told them this before he goes to heaven. He says the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name and to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
It's beautiful. Look at all those threads. The Messiah, the story of death's defeat, the story of salvation, the story of a new Jerusalem, the story of each one of us becoming witnesses to and participants in and bearers of that story. Our story, your story is woven into this moment. It becomes the central fact of all time and all existence. It is the moment when life is uh, overcomes death and when God is raised to the temple as uh, in, in human form so that we may be fully and completely redeemed. It is the promise and the depth of a new dawn. Look, don't settle for a small Easter story. Raise him up. We've been told that for so long that the point of this is that we're not subject to biological death anymore, and that's true. We've been told that the point of this is that we're not subject to the consequences of sin anymore, and that's true. But these things are too small in comparison to the victory that Jesus achieves in the resurrection, because not only has he freed us from sin and death, not only has he taken a hostile world and making it home again, but he has put himself at the center of the universe, and in doing so, he has made everything everything, everything holy, and made everything right again. We are secure now, but more than that, we are freed to love, to be his hands, to be his face, his feet, to a world that desperately needs a savior. The story doesn't end when he emerges from the grave and moves through Jerusalem and finally into heaven with a promise that will be given the spirit and with an obligation to declare his name for the sake of the good news that the world has been made right. It is the completion of not only your own story, but every story, Israel, the Godhead, the universe, our families, our church, our community, all of them pointing towards a resurrected God, Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and conquered death and demands of us that we be different, that we act with an intention and a purpose for justice and kindness and be bearers and witnesses that the world is finally redeemed. Don't settle for a small Easter. The resurrected Jesus is not only the final word on the story of death, but is the culmination of every story, the destination of every journey. And he demands and calls and loves and invites us together to build a kingdom that advances his name and his purposes so that the universe can be made whole. He is risen. Amen. Questions or talk?